Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden in Belfast to start the day. Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary. Can you imagine of the Good Friday Agreement, which of course brought peace to Northern Ireland? The lesson of the Good Friday Agreement is this. In times when things seem fragile or easily broken, that is when hope and hard work are needed the most. That's when we must make our theme repair, repair. And in Holy Easter season, this season, when all Christians celebrate renewal and life, the Good Friday Agreement showed us that there is hope for repair, even in the most awful breakages. The president, alongside Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, to call on Northern Ireland's political leaders here today to end the standoff that has brought the region's devolved government to a halt. There's been no functioning government since February of last year when the Democratic Unionist Party boycotted the administration in protest of Brexit trading agreements for the region. The president spoke to that today. All the immense progress we see around us was built through conversation and compromise. Discussion and debate, voting and inclusion. It's an incredible attestation to the power of democracy to deliver needs for all the people. Let's talk about this with an expert here. Donna Cian Rui is a program fellow for Europe, Russia, and Eurasia at CSIS. And it's great to have you with us, Donna Cian. The president here calling for this end of the standoff. Is anyone listening? Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. I think a lot of people are listening to this, actually. Both the Prime Minister of the UK, even though he didn't attend the speech, he was in Belfast. The leaders of the parties in Northern Ireland, who President Biden had met in D.C. for um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, everyone was listening there. And I, I would guess the leaders of the Republic of Ireland, who he's about to meet, were listening to this as well. The, there were a lot of questions for the administration before the trip. Uh, for the the purpose of the trip. And I think now it's been made clear. He met privately with the leaders of Northern Ireland's five main political parties. I suspect that conversation or those conversations had more impact than a public speech. But but in the U.S. here, people are are kind of making fun of the trip like he's just going to visit the old uh, ancestral home and listen to Irish music. But how important is this day here? I realize he's moving on to Ireland and there's going to be more of a of a leisurely pace there, but how important was this opening visit? I'd say it was crucial. Just one, to mark the anniversary. You said this at the top. Who could have imagined, you know, in 1998? Absolutely. The agreement was incredibly significant, but the president himself said, you know, peace was not inevitable. I would say is also it also was not guaranteed, even after the signing of the agreement. So it's really important to mark that anniversary so that we can all remember there's a lot that needs to be done to sustain that peace and move beyond some of these 
uh, model of segregated politics in Northern Ireland. So I think it's crucial that he came, that he was also actually pretty uh, forceful in, in his speech, I would say, on what he sees as the importance of reforming the in, uh, institutions in Northern Ireland, of supporting the peace and involving all of the parties in this effort. I hope the assembly, he said, and the executive will soon be restored. That's a judgment for you to make, not me. So what happens now? Well, some of it, I would imagine, depends on what he told the leaders in this brief engagement before his speech. Um, what happens now is, I think Prime Minister Sunak, um, uh, Rishi Sunak of the United Kingdom, needs to continue this conversation with the leaders of the parties in Northern Ireland. Uh, there's one party, as you mentioned at the top, the DUP, that continues to refuse to accept the agreement that was signed between the EU and the UK on yeah. um, moving trade access and the movement of goods between all of the different regions. Uh, so what needs to happen now is they need to make a decision on whether they want to be part of the post-Good Friday Agreement institutions, which is the only way to offer the people of Northern Ireland a representation, mm -hmm. a democratic representation in the institutions. I get the sense that not a lot of Americans are plugged into this and, and after the agreement kind of assume that things were fine and may not have been aware of the argument during the, the whole Brexit debate. Can, can you explain to the extent to which Brexit was the corrosive element here? I, I think you hit the nail on the head here. The, the reason the European Union was so crucial in signing the peace or reaching a peace agreement in 1998 was that it prevented what we keep calling a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which are communities that were deeply integrated, but between which there were a lot of tension. And Brexit put this border back on de facto. Uh, there's been a lot of conversations since 2016 and the referendum in the UK to prevent this infrastructure coming back up, some of which is, to be honest, because they would be targets for uh, groups that disagree with this border. And by removing Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK from the European Union, it created a very complicated complicated situation because all of these, these trade routes were established for over decades. So now you have to reinvent a custom system that allows the goods to go beyond between the two regions mm -hmm. and people as well, movement of people. So Brexit really created a very complicated situation where one part of the communities uh, of the community in Northern Ireland saw potential for reunification with Ireland, and the other part felt like it was being ripped away hmm. from the U United Kingdom. That's really helpful. Uh, it was the end of last year, December, that Joe Kennedy, the former congressman, this is the young Joe Kennedy the third, who hmm. just a couple of years ago delivered the Democratic response to a Republican State of the Union address and lost a race for Senate, named as U.S. Special Envoy to Northern Ireland for Economic Affairs. He's with the president. He was with the president in Belfast. What does that appointment tell us about the administration's posture toward all of this? To me, that shows that the administration really understands where some of the pressure points are in Northern Ireland to take stability to the next step, to really what the president talks about, peace dividends. So how do we move from this to economic dividends of the peace? 
Today, we see in Northern Ireland, unemployment is way down. Um, the GDP decrease, for example, during COVID was not as bad as other parts of the UK. However, household income and overall GDP per capita is about 80% what it is in the rest of the United Kingdom. So Northern Ireland has emerged as a place of economic opportunity that is not quite yet realized. So I think that's a positive step from the administration to say, we understand where some of the pockets of opportunity, opportunity lie, and we want to get into those pockets and really expand the potential, which is also why uh, the president mentioned that there's a trade delegation yes. later this year that will come with Joe Kennedy, with U.S. companies, especially if the Windsor, and I, I want to emphasize that point, the new agreement between the, U, the U.K. and the EU offers Northern Ireland dual market access. That is a huge area of opportunity. How about that? Uh, we're spending some time with Donna C. and Rui of CSIS. This is all happening, of course, against the backdrop, as I said earlier, of, of some really intense geopolitical tensions in Europe, extending through Ukraine, of course, and going over to China. And I wonder if we can connect the dots on any of this here as Emmanuel Macron uh, speaks to strategic autonomy in Europe following uh, his trip to China, in, in which he kind of came up empty, seems to be the analysis. Uh, he was looking for a lot more when it came to the assistance uh, to finding peace in Beijing. How much does the president have to worry about maintaining alliances in Europe? Um, I will say, just to give some context to the French visit, mm-hmm. he you could you could see that he didn't get a lot for his visit, but I think people in Washington have focused a lot on the words that he used, and really some of it is I would say a little bit overblown. Now that's not to say that President Biden shouldn't worry about this. Even just for an issue like Ukraine, it is critical for this administration to maintain unity with all of the partners, all the all of its partners in Europe, uh, and that includes France, that includes the United Kingdom, which is also why. He was meeting with the prime minister of the UK this morning. Um, now, China is, as we've talked about a lot, the looming challenge, which is where he, the administration is trying to um, enhance unity in Europe and with the United States on the issue of China. Let's say visits like Macron's visits don't necessarily help, but I don't believe they hurt as much as some of some of what's been portrayed on on this side of the pond. Interesting. This is why we want to have some time with Donacy and Rui. Many thanks uh, for being with us. Program Fellow for Europe, Russia, and Eurasia at CSIS. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and it's time to assemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here, Bloomberg Politics contributors with an eye across an ocean uh, as the president conducts his trip here. It's about to get a lot easier, Rick. He's going on to the ancestral home. He's making the pub visit today. Uh, but those early hours in Belfast, when he spent time with the prime minister, Joe Kennedy at his side here calling for reunification, or at least an end of the standoff might be a better way to put it in Northern Ireland. Will that resonate? Uh, sure. I mean, I think this anytime you have a president with the heritage that he has, um, you know, uh, in country making the visit, uh, his standing is pretty high in the international community, led largely by his leadership around the Ukraine uh, fight. Uh, is is really something special. And and the fact that he can bring this kind of attention to a 25-year-old accord that actually has an incredible amount of meaning right now because 
Uh, these Western institutions of peace and economic prosperity are under assault mm-hmm. by autocrats all around the world. And, and this is an opportunity to celebrate a success story where peace has actually generated economic opportunity for people there. And, and to remind everybody that these things are not hollow institutions, that they're meaningful and they have an impact and they're worth fighting for. This is worth his time here, Jeannie. Will it actually make a difference? I think it does. I think as we go back, we forget how, you know, extraordinary this agreement is. And so it is very important to remember that given the level of violence and hatred over there and this Good Friday agreement was able to make remarkable progress. And of course, there's still more to be done. Only 7% of kids in Ireland go to integrated schools. It's quite remarkable. Um, You were talking about the government basically at a standstill, not working since last year. So these are things that can still be worked on. But I think to sell celebrate that moment, to talk maybe about more economic investment, to talk about what can be done in the wake of Brexit and how that reopened these wounds. We now see, as we look at the polls over there, we've seen a doubling in the increase of support to reunify. So those are issues that still need to be addressed. But it's very important. The president who describes himself or has been described as a five-eighths Irish and Irish (laughs) as a pint of Guinness to be over there talking like this, I think it is critically important. And there's a huge Irish community here in the United States that's waiting to see what he has to say. We can't forget about that. Well, no, absolutely. Uh, Rick, I don't know how old you have to be. I mean, if you're under 40, I'm guessing this is I, I, I we need to tell people that you wouldn't have you wouldn't have believed what this looked like with barbed wire across northern Ireland with daily bombings, uh, fighting with police, the Molotov cocktails. This was like a daily story there. And you fast forward 25 years, people kind of assume everything's always been all right. Right. Uh, Daily story there and here. Uh, This captivated people's attention because it was basically the first we saw of European terrorism long before we ever heard of Al-Qaeda. And the reality is that um, um, it has faded in everybody's memory banks. And and so a reminder so that we don't replicate the uh, abuses of the past. Uh, is is always on tap. Uh, presidents should be history teachers. Uh, they have a unique position in the American psyche to educate. And this is a great example of using some of his bully pulpit in the presidency mm-hmm. to remind people that um, you know we we are only one generation away from, in many cases, you know, really dire situations. And and in this case, leaders banded together and actually improved the situation and it held the test of time. So uh, it is worth a victory lap in that regard, but uh, it's also a cautionary tale because these institutions are not uh, strong right now. They're fragile. They're under assault, uh, both by Democrats and autocrats. And and the reality is um, uh, this is part of the war we're fighting right now for the for the intellectual support of our our voters and our people to to support these kinds of institutions. Rick Davis nails it there. Before the Good Friday agreements, when you talked about terrorist attacks, when you heard reports about terrorist attacks, that was frequently, you were talking about what was going on in Northern Ireland, not the Middle East. It's like another life. Much more with our signature panel, Rick and Jeannie, coming up next. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where we're just getting started on the fastest show in politics. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. 
at Stiefel. It's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The Secretary of Defense says they will turn over every rock to track the leaked documents. Of course... There's no rocks on the dark web, and a lot of people are saying good luck with that. I've been convening senior department leaders daily on our response, yep. and I've directed an urgent cross-department effort. And we've referred the matter to the Department of Justice, which has opened a criminal investigation. There you have Lloyd Austin, says the U.S. will not stop until it finds out how the classified documents on Ukraine, on Israel, and other nations appeared online. In what were his first public remarks about this whole fiasco, held a news briefing yesterday. It was alongside the Philippine Secretary of Foreign Affairs. We learned a little bit more here. He says he was first briefed the 6th of April about what he called reports of unauthorized disclosure of sensitive and classified material compiled by the Pentagon. Days since, we've learned a lot, right? Now, the Justice Department, as he just mentioned, has opened its own investigation the government trying to reassure its allies now about its ability to keep secrets safe. That must have been a fun part of the conversation between Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak. As the defense secretary makes clear, they have no idea. We take this very seriously, and we will continue to work closely with our outstanding allies and partners, and nothing will ever stop us from keeping America secure. And we're just going to keep on looking. Let's reassemble the panel for the latest on this, because, boy... It's not getting any better, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Jeannie, uh, this is clearly an embarrassment. We spent a little bit of time on it yesterday, and we've learned that some of the documents that are in here, namely the one we, we, we heard about involving Egypt supplying rockets uh, to Russia, may not have been accurate. They don't seem to have much of a clue on even where to start here. How do you conduct an investigation of the dark web? You know, fiasco, the word you used, I think, is an apt way to describe this. Everybody you talk to says, oh, by the way, if you're under 25, we'll have to explain to you what Discord is because <laughs> right. you've yeah, never yeah, been yeah. on it and you have no idea. I and, had to ask. So yeah, and this go. is where these documents were released, and we don't know, to your point, how many were manipulated, which are true, which aren't true. And they raise real questions about Ukraine's ability to you know, fight this counteroffensive. Does the United States need to step up more 
at this point. And we do know that we've been pushing our allies, South Korea, Israel, to step up the supply. So an awful lot there. And again, we don't know the veracity of the documents. We don't know where they came from. We don't know the motive of the leaker. And so all of these things, you know, I think really a, a real embarrassment for the Pentagon, quite frankly, and yeah. something they do have to get to the bottom of because, you know, this kind of thing does really have enormous ripple effects as we go forward on everything from the war to Ukraine to our ability to secure our documents. You know, how can the United States not be able to do this at this point when we're talking about documents this critical? The stuff involving Ukraine uh, is concerning, certainly, to Ukraine, and never mind the U.S. here, Rick. Ukraine's defense minister, uh, Reznikov, says the leak on Ukraine is a mixture of true, false, and outdated information because it definitely doesn't uh, speak compliments to Ukraine. And it, it would suggest that the U.S. is very worried about this offensive and, and what strategy Ukraine might have. Well, look, there's no question that the United States uh, has a point of view that is uh, probably decidedly different than the public projections uh, that, that they make. And, and, and that's absolutely a fair consideration, right? And then when you have documents like this that leak out that undermine that public perception, um, um, you know, it's embarrassing, but it's actually not necessarily a bad strategy. I mean, you know, we are in a fight for the hearts and minds of leaders all around Western Europe. Uh, to supply uh, materials and support to the Ukrainians, and you don't necessarily open your kimono uh, to all of those individuals every time you're asking them uh, to participate. And and so, uh, yeah, it doesn't help the Ukrainians. Uh, the 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 older material in there is probably not relevant. I mean, it's historical knowledge that Russians can take advantage of, but uh, probably not operational. Uh, but there are probably things in there that. Uh, I'm sure the Ukrainians would prefer the Russians not to be uh, broadcast. Now, uh, we are in a battle of intelligence. Uh, the Biden administration has used quite well the selective leaks of Russian right. intelligence to undermine their campaign in Ukraine. Uh, and, and now, unfortunately, their, their leak of intelligence information uh, is cutting against them. But look, um, we don't know how many times this has been cycled through other people before it was published. We don't know how many things, as Jeannie said, have been manipulated. We know there are facts and figures on, on war casualties in Russia that have been manipulated. Why in the world would you do that? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I think before you make any conclusions on what impact this is going to have on uh, a potential offensive uh, initiated by the Ukrainians, uh, you, you really got to figure out, you know, sort of what's accurate, what's not accurate, and, uh, and, and how many people passed through this document before it actually showed up right. on the web. And it could have been apparently thousands, uh, according to reports, which is a bit scary here, Jeannie. And it does call into question, you know, processes and whether we need to start making some, you know, new protocols in this new digital world that we're in. Uh, but what does this mean in terms of conversations with our allies? Uh, the ambassador from Morocco yesterday was you know, really condemning the Biden administration for spying on our allies after Barack Obama said this wouldn't happen again. Is this a tough conversation today or was it earlier in Belfast, for instance, for Joe Biden? It, it, it could have been tough. I can't imagine that they are surprised. Look, listen, we do it. We do it. So we're they shocked do it. that there's gambling going on. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a little bit of sort of, um, you, you know, going out there and saying, you know, sort of pretend shock, if you will. But <laughs> okay. the, the reality is nobody's shocked by that. Mm -hmm. But I do think it does raise real, real issues in terms of, you know, we've been hearing from the Republican side in some cases, you know, no blank check. Well, if these documents are be, be believed, there has been no 
blank check on the part of the United States. We have been generous, but the blank check idea is out the window. So, you know, there are repercussions in an awful lot of areas. But sure, we do keep track on what our allies are doing. It's not comfortable to have that information released publicly, but we can bet they are doing the same thing to us as much as they are able. Spending time with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano here on Bloomberg Sound On. I have to ask you guys, because you're here, we're going to have more on this next hour when we spend some time with Mark and the Cat. Uh, but we've got another. And a lot of people saw this coming. He's been making all the right moves, going to all the right places. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is getting a lot closer. I'm announcing my exploratory committee for president of the United States. Yes, with great dramatic flourish and high production values, yet another video starts at Mount Sumter. I don't know if that was the right idea or not, Rick, but how promising is this candidacy? You know, look, I mean, uh, Tim Scott is, uh, I think, got great potential to overperform. Uh, a lot of Republicans like him. They've, they have they like the sort of uh, story of Tim Scott coming from nothing to something and and the aspirational nature of what he says. And, and he's a very positive individual. Uh, so I, I think there's a real story there for the Republican Party that may have quite a bit of fatigue with those who served in the you know, Trump administration with Trump himself, the the anxiety that everyone feels about all the, the attacks going back and forth. And and he's kind of like the the calm in the center of that storm right now. And that, that might be actually uh, an interesting approach to take as he it, you know plans to launch a presidential campaign, yeah. uh, uh, just being the the normal guy. Jeannie, he calls out uh, Joe Biden in the video and Democrats. We see images of AOC and Bernie Sanders. He says they're exploiting race and that Democrats refer to him as a token. Will that resonate? You know, I, I think it could on, on the Republican right. And I think in normal times, Tim Scott would be a really great candidate. But you look at what Jason Miller tweeted out, Trump's advisor. He said this is going to be really bad for DeSantis. And I think that that's really what we're seeing here is as these people roll out from Nikki Haley to potentially Tim Scott, if he goes through with this, you know, Trump's team is betting that they're going to take from DeSantis. And so, you know, in a normal world, I'd say he's a great candidate. But in this environment, Trump's it. And and hmm. I'm not sure he's going to resonate in the way he should. And I that video he rolled out that you're mentioning, yeah. very interesting to me to see him think talking about, you know, the culture on the left of grievance and victimhood. That's I'm right. listening to Donald Trump and all he does is have a culture of grievance <laughs> about himself. So well, I thought that was a very strange way to roll this out. Not sure he was talking about grievance over great he said rick does that does that resonate with more than than the right though does that resonate with the center uh yeah there may be um uh, voters especially those that might participate in a caucus in iowa uh who um you know would uh, that would resonate with look there's a lot of people who feel displaced in society today and, and i think that regardless of where you call it a grievance or 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 uh cultural issues uh, i think that He's trying to tap into that in a, in a very subtle way, uh, maybe too subtle for uh, politics today, which seems hmm. to be on the you know hard end of a two by four where you spend most <laughs> of your time. So just ask Asa Hutchinson, uh, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, we'll be back with a little bit more. We're going to bring Emily Wilkins in as we acknowledge and mark the hundredth day of the Republican led house. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's been 100 days, 100 days since the House GOP got to work. As we read, 
on the terminal. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins House GOP off to bumpy start, slowed by debt limit party rifts. Yes, they emerged from their first 100 days struggling to carry out, Emily writes, much of their agenda while facing debt limit and spending showdowns. It could make or break their ability to hold their majority. Just remember where we were, though, 100 days ago and change. Remembering it took an historic 15 rounds of voting. I had to look. It was 15 rounds to elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Remember, he spoke when it was done. See, this is the great part. Because it took this long, now we learned how to govern. There we go. So now we'll be able to get the job done. So now. Well, it's been 100 days and still not a lot to show for it. To Emily Wilkins reporting, she's with us now. Emily, uh, what is there to show for 100 days? So it's not like Republicans are completely empty handed right now. They did pass a major energy package that they can say now that they've pushed yeah. for energy independence. Of HR course, that's one. not going to HR one. They're not it's not going to go to the Senate, not going to go to the president, although maybe parts of the bill might. Uh, they also did pass a package on this parental bill of rights when it comes to parents knowing things about their child's schools, uh, schools making sure they're asking permission for the parents before certain things. Again, that's not really going to go anywhere. And again, even for that, you kind of saw this really rocky passage where initially you had some hardline conservatives saying, hey, this bill does not go far enough. They wound up adding some amendments on transgender students that won the support of some hardliners. But then you lost a couple moderates who were like, like, hey, we can't vote on this and then go back to our uh, districts. You know, these are districts with a lot of independent voters, a lot of Democrats who just aren't going to be in favor of some of those provisions. And so this is the difficulty here. McCarthy, to become speaker, made a number of agreements. And the crux of all those agreements is that all, two, all 222 Republicans would get more of a say in the process. And the good news is that, you know, that is kind of how our democracy should be. But the trick of it is, is that it becomes more and more difficult then. You have so many cooks at the kitchen. Mm -hmm. You have so many people who are trying to contribute things that it does become difficult sometimes to pass some of these pieces of legislation just because everyone wants to have a say. We don't count the hearings, the investigations, the oversight, which has been a big component of this new majority as something to show for the first hundred days, right? They actually haven't culminated in anything yet. They haven't. And I got some interesting perspectives when I was speaking to folks on that. I mean, for one regard, you know, Americans do want Republicans to focus on things like the banking crisis, the train derailments, uh, not so much, say, Hunter Biden's laptop. And Republicans have faced some criticism from conservative commentators who have said, look, we don't see a smoking gun. We ha they've yet to really uncover any evidence. But, Joe, you know, on the other hand, they are, A, only 100 days into it. Uh, certainly Jim Jordan's sending out plenty of subpoenas, trying to get a lot of witnesses, doing depositions that we might learn about later. And the other interesting thing is, as I was uh, speaking with Kevin Kosar, uh, who, you know, covers Congress for the American Enterprise Institute, and he was like, look, even if Republicans don't wind up with some major thing that completely crashes and burns Biden's presidential run, just by the fact that they are doing these investigations, by the fact that they are looking into these things and talking about these things, that alone is going to be enough to win some of these Republicans big points with their base. It's a great piece of reporting. Check it out on the terminal from Emily Wilkins. House GOP off to bumpy start, slowed by debt limit party rifts. We do have a lot more to follow in the second uh, half of this year, complete with the 100 day scorecard. Great work, Emily. And thank you as we reassemble the panel for their take on this. Rick and Jeannie, 100 days in, uh, Jeannie, it's, it's easy to, I guess, 
throw rocks at a new Republican majority that doesn't have a lot to show for it. But, how you know, they're not done yet. And I do wonder, we've come a long way since we were talking about, you know, motions to vacate and how Kevin McCarthy uh, could potentially get fired in his first hundred days, haven't we? It, we have. I mean, he hasn't gotten fired. He's, they did get two bills through, and, and Emily noted they got other priorities passed that won't make it through the Senate. But this is life in a divided government with a divided caucus, only a four-seat margin, and beholden to a former president who's running again. And this is what mm. we're seeing. And, you know, the latest Pew research shows a 29 approval rating for Republicans. They're coming back after Easter break, and they're going to have a huge challenge because they've got to deal with the elephant in the room, which is the debt ceiling. And we heard in the leaks over the weekend and last week that Kevin McCarthy doesn't have faith in some of his top lieutenants, including Jody Arrington and Steve Scalise. So how he's going to work with them to get this done in, with the very minimal you know, margin that he has, he can only lose for, is going to be tricky. If he's able to do it, he may go down in the annals as an amazing speaker. But so far, we haven't seen that. We don't have an X date yet, Rick, but I suppose the next 100 days uh, could bring some resolution, for better or worse, to this debt ceiling crisis. Will that define the Speaker's first uh, session here as Speaker of the House? Well, this could actually define his speakership, right? I mean, there's really been nothing happening that would upset any of the MAGA Republicans who opposed his speakership, right? They've all been out doing their own thing, no interruptions from the Speaker, uh, but no progress on the budget or uh, the debt ceiling uh, activity. And that's where some of the some of the tension will probably come in. And so, you know, in the next quarter, uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy is going to have to use some of the credit that he's built up to be able to cashier a deal uh, with the Biden administration on the debt ceiling. And, you know, he, he stood up in the well and talked about his first hundred days and basically attacked the Democrats for not having a budget. And so uh, I guess a good defense is always a good offense. Well, so you sound a little skeptical then. Do you is he in a stronger position now than he was after 15 rounds and on the verge of being fired? No, I think he's in the same position. Again, nothing that? has happened since then that would mm-hmm. actually change the dynamic, either make him less popular or more popular with the uh, with the group that was opposing him. And, you know, he's allowed Marjorie Taylor Greene to take a leadership role and, you know, be important on a lot of committees. He's allowed Jim Jordan to investigate anybody he wants to investigate without any progress on other important issues. You know, I mean, like he's allowed the team that opposed him to go ahead and do whatever they want to do. But he's not making any progress on his agenda, and his agenda has to be passing a budget. You know, he said regular order. That means all these appropriation committees should be doing work today to manage out a budget, which will then give them the insight into the spending cuts that they want in order to put a deal on the table with Biden. None of that's been done. So, I mean, who's who's he upsetting? I mean, there's no tension other than in the leadership ranks where everyone's pointing a finger as to why this budget isn't getting done. Jeannie, does Joe Biden trust Kevin McCarthy to the extent that he says he does? You know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on it. Um, Sounds you like know, a no. I, I wouldn't bet on it. I think he can work with him. Joe Biden is comfortable working with the legislature. That's not a problem for him, but he's going to keep asking for this budget, and that's going to be a challenge for, for Kevin McCarthy. God knows we're still waiting. 
Great conversation with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel on the fastest show in politics. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We have Katie Lines with us for Hour 2 of Sound On, which we do every day now live from Washington. I'm Joe Matthew. And Kaylee, uh, this is not great. As the mm-hmm. Fed suggests, uh, a recession may well be on the horizon. The headline on the terminal uh, staff projected mild recession starting later in 23. Yeah, and remember, this is the meeting minutes of a meeting in which they did still unanimously hike That's by right. 25 basis points because they are trying to fight inflation. But really, when we're thinking about what the Fed does next, it is that kind of concern around recession that may cast some doubt onto whether or not the Fed is actually going to hike again or ultimately pause in May. Also, a headline that came out here and is revealed in the minutes is that Fed officials stress the need for policy flexibility. This really comes down to the issue of credit conditions, given the bank failures we have seen, the fact that banks seem to be pulling back on lending. All of that tightens conditions in the economy, which is in theory what the Fed wants to achieve, but may already be doing some of its work for it. And of course, this is something we've heard the IMF talking about this week as well. Fascinating. It's a good good day to have Libby Cantrell on board, the head of public policy at Pacific Investment Management Company. That's, of course, PIMCO. And Libby, it's great to have you with us here. Uh, I was looking forward to talking with you about the debt ceiling. I found your note fascinating this week, but I have to ask you just uh, if you have any reaction to this, whether these Fed minutes help to fill in any blanks for you as you look ahead for a potential recession later this year. Yeah, I mean, it does. I think in some ways, um, I think the Fed likely saw a lot what it wanted to see in terms of, um, you know, cooling rental and housing uh, and shelter inflation. That's, of course, been sort of stubbornly high and is about a third of CPI. And so the fact that that is at least directionally um, decreasing and softening uh, will likely, um, you know, reassure the Fed that they are on the right track. 
Goods inflation also softening as well. Um, that's actually under uh, the inflation, uh, the Fed's target right now um, on the goods inflation. But of course, services inflation is remaining stubbornly high. And that is, I think, the big open question. Now, some of that's coming from and a lot of this will probably resonate with your listeners because we have all experienced it, very high airfares uh, and mm-hmm. high hotel prices. Those are obviously very volatile and could you know, decrease um, in sort of the cyclical time period. But, um, but obviously higher than services, inflation is still higher than what the Fed is, is comfortable with. But again, the fact that you know, housing and shelter inflation is softening, that should reassure the Fed that, again, they're moving in the right direction probably gives them a little bit more wiggle room in the May meeting. Um, you know, I think we are, you know, mm-hmm. I think our view is that they're close to the terminal rate here, regardless whether they hike one more time or whether they pause. But certainly, you know, peak inflation now is in the rearview mirror. And I think today's print um, sort of reassures them of that. So, Libby, you say things are heading in the right direction, but direction is different from ultimate destination. And we're still trying to get down to 2% inflation. So it raises a question of how much more pain the Fed would be willing to tolerate to get there. Also, the question of how much pain the Biden administration would be willing to tolerate, because we know they have been wanting to get inflation down because it has plagued them politically. But if we're talking now about a mild recession, more economic damage happening as a result, that's tough, too. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, our view here at PIMGO is that the Fed will likely see inflation get down to around 3% by the end of the year. But, of course, that is not uh, the 2% uh, inflation target. Um, our, you know, we, we have the benefit of now having former Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida uh, rejoin PIMCO. And he mm-hmm. says that the Fed probably would feel you know, more comfortable at sort of 2 plus something, not 3 so to your point, um, if you know inflation's still running around three percent, that you know, still indicates that the Fed probably has some more to do, um, and that will likely mean more pain in the labor market. In our view, honestly, it's pretty consistent with the, what the Fed staff's view is that we will likely see. Um, you know, chances are higher than not of a mild recession later this year. Uh, again, mild, not deep recession. We're not talking about the financial crisis of 2008 or anything like it. Um, but there will be some discomfort in order to get that inflation target kind of in line with where the Fed wants it to be. One of the great wild cards here is the debt ceiling issue, of course. Uh, Libby, and you're talking about that in the PIMCO Washington Watch. I was compelled by Uh, The way you tackled this, because Congress is, of course, out of town, so no progress this week. And God knows we'll probably have none next week. But when you look ahead to the X date, we're waiting for that. Tax day is almost here. So we'll have a real uh, day at some point soon here. But you're pointing to the Treasury's monthly debt report suggesting the X date would occur uh, not until late July or August, which, as you point out, may well correspond with Congress's annual August recess. And we know there's going to be a lot of headlines about jet fumes or something at that point in time here. That That is the compelling factor here. And I wonder if you see a deal being struck mid to late summer because of it. Yeah, you know, I think it's sort of serendipitous in some ways that it looks like um, the Treasury will probably be able to use these extraordinary measures past the not only the April 15th tax filing uh, deadline, which, as yeah. you note, is important, but also June 15th, another important tax filing sort of inflection point. If they can get past those two dates, then they probably will be able to get 
to end of July, if not early August. And then this is exactly the kind of the political point I was trying to make in my note uh, this week was that this you know, neatly corresponds to the fact that Congress does want to get out of town. They, of course, have an annual six-week recess where they go back to their districts, they do some work, and they usually go on vacation as well. They are human beings after all. Um, And that is oftentimes a real motivator for them to get things done. A lot of times we see some of the biggest pieces of legislation or the biggest deals in sort of recent history happen before a congressional recess, whether it's August or, or Christmas break, which is also another big inflection point. So, so my kind of my point is, my hope, I guess, is that this will provide an incentive for folks to really try to hammer something out. Before then, President Biden, as you know, continues his stance. He is not going to negotiate on this. Uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, says that is not a viable stance. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't, this sort of dance between the two will happen. Happen, you know, over the next few weeks, if not months. But again, I think we are here at PIMCO. Um, there might be some volatility, some brinksmanship, as we all have learned to expect, but that there will mm-hmm. likely be a deal. Again, the timing of this um, that corresponds with the summer recess, I think, uh, sort of points to an increased chances of, of a deal before before that August recess. Okay, so that's before that August recess. In the meantime, maybe it still is, as you say, a dance or maybe a stare down and someone has to blink first. I just wonder, Libby, given the events of recent weeks, questions swirling around the ethics of conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, another mass shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, competing rulings on abortion pills and access to those, the indictment of President Trump. Are these all just wins that are stacking up in the Democratic column, making it less likely that Republicans are going to want to push too hard on the debt ceiling issue and risk being blamed uh, for something bad happening there, too? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point. Um, obviously, sort of the political climate here really does you know, matter. I do think that Republicans are going to want to have some sort of, you know, olive branch, fig leaf, what have you, um, something that they can declare as some sort of win. And I think, you know, President Biden, um, you know, he he's very familiar with the incentives of members of Congress, of course, having served in the Senate for for four decades. And so he, you know, he, I think, is probably going to be inclined to try to provide something to those Republicans as well, whether that is a future discussion over spending. As you you both very well know, the debt ceiling is actually not at all, ironically, related to future spending. It just simply allows for us to honor the spending that we've already agreed to in many cases of already um, the, the funds that we've already spent. Um, but so I think President Biden is trying to find an off-ramp, some political cover to provide for Republicans. And um, again, I think he understands sort of the incentive system of, of McCarthy and, and what have you. But I do think you're right that, um, you know, Speaker McCarthy has indicated and, and so has Leader McConnell have indicated that they have no intention of, you know, of defaulting on the U.S. debt um, right. and that they just want to simply have a discussion. So I think we need to take them at their word. They are not... You know, there's no political upside at this point for them to actually take us to to the brink. Um, and, you know, again, our expectation is that there's a resolution before before that. Well, it brings us to the budget, of course, budget negotiations that have not even started yet. We were talking last hour uh, with Rick Davis and, and Jeannie Shanzano on our political panel about this, marking the first hundred days. That was yesterday. It was day 100 of this 
uh, Republican majority in the House. They promised regular order, Libby, and I know that that's kind of a joke around here in Washington, but we were supposed to be going through the process. Uh, We're talking about the debt ceiling largely in a vacuum here, but of course Kevin McCarthy says they're not doing that, a clean debt ceiling bill without an agreement on spending cuts. And we're nowhere near that happening. So how do we get one without the other? Yeah, and of course, um, you know, Joe, as you know, that you know, Speaker McCarthy was making a big deal about passing a budget that was going to be kind of the first order of business for the right. Republican caucus in the House. This was January. Now, fast forward to April, and he's sort of saying, oh, maybe the budget's not as important. Um, now, the budget, as you know, folks may or may not know, is sort of a symbolic, ge- symbolic um, gesture, if you will. Uh, it is non-binding. Um, the president proposes his budget first, and then each chamber mm-hmm. proposes their own budget. And then that will lead um, to appropriations bills, which actually then lead to to the actual funding of various programs and what have you across the government. It's a very tedious, um, you know, uh, circuitous process. Um, but it is important. And it is important because uh, for Republicans in the House, it actually could you know, lay out some of their objectives and could give the White House an indication of where, you know, they may be able to negotiate on future spending bills. Now, again, Biden has made it clear he does not want to negotiate over the debt ceiling, and I can't stress this enough. These are two separate processes. Um, The Republicans want to link them, but they are actually inherently separate, the debt ceiling and over, you know, future spending. Um, But the Republicans at this point, and this is the most, I think the the, the bottom line here is that they, there isn't unanimity among Republicans about spending cuts. And this Mm -hmm. is, this is the tension. There's only a, they only have a four seat majority, really difficult to get a narrow majority in the House Republican caucus on board with spending cuts, especially when you're talking about things like veterans benefits or health care benefits, really things that actually um, affect their constituents. I have a popsicle headache. It's with nothing. (laughs) We have the same conversation for 100 days, probably 100 more. Right. Uh, But, you know, Kaylee, there's another date that Libby has in this important note, and it's November mm -hmm. of 2023. Nobody's actually given me a real answer on that. When is the last possible date for President Biden to jump in the race? Yeah, so it is November, and that that is only again, as you just not to get way too in the weeds here, but I know you guys like yeah, the we weeds. love weeds. <laughs> we live, we, we all live in the weeds. Um, that is the that's the, the 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 beginning of when the states start requiring uh, candidates to file for their the respective parties' primaries. That is the first set of dates. So presuming that you know President Biden wants to be on every ballot in every state and every primary, which I think is a safe assumption that November would be the last possible time mm-hmm. that he could declare. But of course, he's going, you know, our expectation uh, is that he is going to do so uh, well in advance of that. I think lots of folks thought it was going to be the spring looking maybe more like late spring or early summer. I think to our previous discussion, in some ways, it behooves him to delay as much as possible. Not only does he sort of clear the field, uh, which is sort of a given at this point that no other viable Democrat will run against him, but he also gets to be president for a little bit longer. It's not great to be a candidate for president. As we all know, it's exhausting. And you're also then viewed as inherently partisan. I think he wants, he's relishing that sort of that less partisan role as being president. Um, And he, you know, again, behooves him to not necessarily jump into the race as, as quickly as I think a lot of folks expect it. Yeah, Libby Cantrell of PIMCO, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.